Hello. Good morning. Oh, come on. That was so weak. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> uh, my name is uh, Hojin, and I'm the Yanda pastor here at our church, and I have the privilege of preaching God's word today, and uh, I just want to say thank you to the, the praise team today, and um, if I could, uh, I just wish I could tell each and every one of you, like, lock eyes with you and just tell you how much God loves you, and that's what I uh, felt and, and sensed as, as we were singing, you know, some of those songs, and to think that, you know, maybe 200 people are singing words like, I found a love, right? Like, that, you, that doesn't compare, that we can't find anywhere else. In the city of Boston, it's such a powerful thing. And, uh, all you have to do is visit another church, and you miss being here uh, with one another. And, yeah, I'm just very, very grateful uh, this morning. Uh, during my time <clears throat> in seminary, um, I worked at Starbucks at Wellington Circle in Medford, Massachusetts. Not, not too far. Um, I know, it's hard to imagine me in a, a green apron uh, making coffee drinks with, with, with a smile, but uh, <laughs> one, one random day, uh, we had our, you know, the mid-afternoon rush, like 3 p.m., the line is out the door, and usually I just go tunnel, tunnel vision and just start making drinks, but... My coworker passes by me behind. He's like, hey, I think Michelle Kwan is online. And if you don't know who Michelle Kwan is, she is a two-time Olympic medalist, figure skater for the United States uh, back in the day. And I don't know if, if some of you are, I hope you weren't born when, when she was in the Olympics. But 1998 and 2002, um, <laughs> But this was bef before, like, all the snowboarding, like, you know, half pipes and stuff. So she was, like, the Chloe Kim of, of my day. And to be honest, I, I kind of had a crush on her. And um, this was before I, I met my wife, so don't worry. Um, but my, my coworker whispered that to me. I'm like, come on, she's not here. What would she be doing here? Uh, but he insisted. I looked up, and it was Michelle Kwan. Uh, and I don't know what came over me, but I was like, I'm going to get her drink order. <laughs> I, I, I just went up to her, oh, like, good morning, oh, good afternoon, what would you like today? And I served her a grande hot passion tea. That's, that's my claim to fame with an Olympic athlete. I, I later found out that she was going to Tufts, um, which is in Somerville, Medford, uh, for, yeah, Tufts, shout out, y'all been coming out, yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for coming. I know it's not easy to, to show up and hope you feel loved uh, by our church. Uh, but I don't know, it came over me, I like, got her a drink and I gave her a hot passion tea. And I'm always tempted to tell that story and make it a little bit more than it is. That like she like, gave me a smile, right? Like she uh, like, gave me a handshake or whatever, but really that was it. She said thank you and left. But... I'm always tempted to make it more than it is, to draw conclusions and assumptions and tell stories of, hey, I, like Michelle Kwan's favorite drink is hot passion tea. <laughs> but that's not the truth, because I've never had a conversation with her. I would 
be tempted to talk about how she comes into Starbucks all the time, but that was the one time I saw her come in. And sometimes we do that with God, I realize. We extrapolate a few encounters, few personal insights and things that we glean, maybe even from society and church. And we end up knowing about God, but we don't know God himself. Just like I know about Michelle Kwan, I could look her up on Wikipedia, I could search for this image. I could feel like I know her. But we do that with God sometimes. I know I do that with God. I, I claim to know him, but it's more me knowing about him, details about him, but not knowing him intimately. And right now we're in the season, uh, Ernie uh, just shared that we're in the season of Lent. And Ash Wednesday was this past uh, week, and it marks the beginning of Lent. It's a 40-day period, minus Sundays, before Easter. It's, it's a season of preparing our hearts, and uh, actually, historically, it's a time of focused prayer, repentance, generosity. That, that was actually something that kind of struck me new. Uh, it, it was intended to be a, a, an increased season of generosity, and, and a lot of us know a, a season of fasting. And today, uh, we're starting a new series through the book of Exodus, and we're not going to go through every single passage, but for the next, uh, this week and and the next uh, five, we're going to look at select passages, and what we want to do is we want to know God. We don't want to know about God. We don't want to talk about him in in theory. We don't want to talk about him, but we want to know what he says about himself. We want to know what he reveals about himself. So for us, we want to go so deep into this particular character of God's covenant love. And the story of Exodus is all about how God rescues his people and fulfills the promises that, that he's made to them from long, long ago. And the story of Exodus is unmistakably about God. God is the main character of the story of Exodus. We're tempted to, to read the beginning and think it's about Moses, but it really is about God. So during this Lent season, we want to take a direct and deep and deliberate look at God as he is described in Exodus. So we're going to look at Exodus 3 first. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, Exodus 3. And we're going to read the first 15 verses. Exodus 3, starting from verse 1. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can read along with me on the screen. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God Called, out, called, him, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and instead to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place where Canaan, of the Canaanites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, and when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the, uh, the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The, God, uh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am, be, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we continue. God, we thank you that from the very beginning that you're a God who wants to reveal yourself to your people. From the very beginning, you've wanted a relationship with us. So during this time, we want to come before you and ask in your mercy that you would reveal yourself yet again on a deeper level, that we will get to know you and really know you and not just know about you. We pray for all the churches not just in Boston, but all over the world, that as we go into this season of approaching Easter, that we would go so deep with you and behold the, the very one and only true living God that has hope and joy and peace to offer to us that we cannot find anywhere else. So we pray for this time to be so, so about you, that you would take center stage and you would show us exactly who you say you are. So strengthen us at this time, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a little bit of background, because if we're going to talk about God's covenant love, we have to talk about the, the covenant. And in this uh, passage of scripture, it's as if God is answering rhetorically this one question. It's as if he's asking how, he's answering, how do you want to be known? known? God, how do you want to be known? So God, in his own words, he shares in Exodus 3, how he wants to be known and remembered by his people. And in verse 6, this is, out of anything that God could have said, this is what God chooses to reveal. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he would actually say it again in in, in verse 15, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So even today, we're supposed to know this God as the God of Abraham. And for God to do that, to identify with Abraham, it it meant that he was trying to highlight this covenant that uh, he made with Abraham back in Genesis. And we're going to look at just Genesis 17, two verses. He he repeats this covenant over and over to, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But here's what he says. 
In Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There are divine promises that God established back in Genesis, and he, in Exodus 3, is saying, I'm going to fulfill them. That, when he says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says, I'm going to fulfill them. But the issue is that the book of Exodus begins, and this covenant is at risk. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They're under oppression. They're suffering, and this promised land of Canaan seems so far away. They're stuck in Egypt. It seems like an unlikely possibility, and the covenant looks like it's not going to be fulfilled. And in Exodus 3, God reveals himself. He shows up in the book for the very first time, and this is what he says, that he's the God of Abraham. So I believe that God is trying to tell us that he's a God of covenant faithfulness, a God of covenant love, even when it seems like he isn't going to be faithful. God was and is and will be the only true God who keeps his covenant with his people. So specifically today, we're going to look at two ways that God keeps his promises, his covenant promises, this agreement that he made with Abraham to be their God, to provide blessing and offspring in the land. And in return, Abraham was to obey, obey God. So we're going to look at two ways God keeps his promises to his people. Two ways that God keeps his promises to his people. First, God sees, hears, and knows his people. God keeps his promises to his people by seeing, hearing, and knowing exactly who they are. Right before uh, our passage today in Exodus chapter 2, the last three verses, it's almost like this narrative introduction to uh, chapter 3. During those many days, people approximate about 40 years, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I love that chapter two ends with those three words, and God knew. Isn't that amazing that God, he notices these things? He, he's, he's setting up the stage and he's reminding everyone that he's going to remember the, the promises that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God would express this again, even in a couple of verses later in, in verse 7, that he, hear, he, he sees, he hears, he knows what is happening to his people. And Sometimes we take it for granted, right? We, we assume, maybe through the songs that we sing or just maybe even the Christian cliches that, oh yeah, God knows, God sees, God, God hears. But to remind ourselves that he is so close to us, he knows the pain that we experience. He's so, he wants to be so imminent to you that he sees exactly what's going on in your life. He's fully aware He's not ignorant. He's totally cognizant of every single detail 
of your life. And God still sees, hears, and knows his people today. In Knowing God uh, by J.I. Packer, which is considered a modern Christian classic, he writes this. I'm going to read a little bit uh, prior to the quote. What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. Even if we pause there, the only way we know God is because he knows us. He wants to communicate to us. He wants to show us who he is. And Packer continues, I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. We read the beginning of Exodus and it seems like the covenant is not going to be kept. It feels like Israel has been ignored, that their suffering is going unnoticed. But God shows up in a burning bush to Moses and reveals himself as the God of Abraham, and he tells him, tells him his personal name, and it's all to say that God keeps his covenant promises. And he does that by fully knowing his people, by seeing and hearing and, and knowing what's going on, the good, the bad. And every person who professes faith in, in God has a firsthand experience of this. That the God who created the universe isn't some distant uh, deity, but he is lovingly mindful in the same way he is in Exodus 2 and 3. It means that God keeps his promises in watching over me, knowing what's going on, and maybe he's not acting right away, but he sees it. He's waiting for the moment to act. Every single one of us, God wants us to be his covenant people. And I know that there are some of us who do not believe in Jesus here, and we're so grateful, but this is the invitation. To be in relationship with God is to be in the comforting knowledge of God, the God of the universe, control of every single detail that sees us, hears us, and knows us. And the proper response is to, to trust, trust him. It's to trust him. Israel was called to trust him. Moses was called to trust him during this time. And I want to make clear that trusting God doesn't mean we don't struggle with doubt. Trusting him doesn't mean we, have moment, we don't have moments of uncertainty or frustration. Trusting him doesn't mean that we don't have questions. But trusting him does mean that we hold on to his promises. Especially the promises written out in scripture, it means that we fight to believe what we know is truth even when it doesn't feel like truth. Trusting God is to exercise faith. Uh, Christian author Mark Batterson writes, faith is embracing the uncertainty, uncertainties of life. It is recognizing a divine appointment when you see, see one. A divine appointment when you see one. What uncertainties are you experiencing in, in your life? Is it anxiety about work or school? Is there instability in some of your relationships? 
your finances? Are there areas of life where you feel like you don't have any control? And especially this past week, are there external circumstances that don't seem to make sense? We saw another school shooting in this country. And I believe it was like the 29th one of 2018. Mass shooting of 2018. We're barely, barely trying to get to to March. It doesn't make sense. And the inclination is to to get angry at other people, to, to think about who's at fault here. But if we're in a covenant relationship with God, we know we have to trust that God sees, hears, and knows these things. And he's, he's aching also. And he's looking for that moment when he can show up and act. But in the meantime, it's for God's people to, to trust him. And it's not just to trust. We're going to see later that God does call us to act. Anytime we face uncertainty, Mark Batterson, is, is, he says it's a divine appointment. It's as if God is saying, hey, let's have a one-on-one. Are you unsure about something? Let's have a one-on-one. Tell me what, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, because I'm going to hear you. I promise to hear you. Show me what's going on around you and the people around you. I promise to see you. Let me know where you need help, and I promise that I'll know and I'll do what's best for you. I'll fulfill my promises in you. That's what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. So first, God sees, hears, and knows his people. Second, God comes down to his people. God comes down to his people. God keeps his covenant promises by coming down to his people. In Exodus 3, verse 8, God is speaking, and he says, I have come down to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land, out of Egypt, to a good and broad land, the promised land, a land land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The fact that God names these people groups is already an issue. That means somebody else is living in that land. But God says, I have come down. That occupied land right now is going to be yours. God appears to Moses in the burning bush and declares that he's here and that he's going to rescue Israel from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And by coming down, God further declares that he's going to fulfill the things that he promised to Abraham in Genesis. But what follows is... What, is, what should kind of confuse us and, and surprise us. Because in verse 9 and 10, it says, Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God just said, I have come down, and then he says, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you to Moses. It's an odd thing, isn't it? Uh, Last Monday, I know this was kind of big news in the sports world, but Steve Kerr of the Golden State Warriors, he's the head coach, he decided to let his players coach. So if you look at at the image, he's not holding the whiteboard at all. He's letting, I think it's Andre Iguodala, um, 
draw out the play in between a, a timeout. And even prior to this, players led the film session. Uh, the other players ran, ran the shoot-around before the game, and um, not only Andre Iguodala, but Draymond Green drew up plays during the timeouts. And Steve Kerr later explained that he did this so that his players would renew their focus. They're in a slump right now. Steve Kerr said that he did this so that his players would take ownership of the team. And I think, in a sense, that's what God is doing here. When he says, I have come down, but come, I I will send you. He's he's most certainly going to deliver Israel out of Egypt. He's going to save his people. But what does he do? He calls Moses to to participate, to, to be his messenger, to be the agent of deliverance. God hands off the, the, the mission, the baton to, to Moses, and he wants Moses to be the one who helps bring, ab- bring about his covenant promises. God has a specific role for Moses in the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham and to his people Israel at this very moment. But Moses would have a bunch of questions, and we didn't get to look at all of them, but I'm going to list them out here. Moses asks about his status and reputation, right? He says, come, I will send you. And then he says, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He says, I'm I'm a nobody. Like, who am I? And then in verse 13, he he questions his knowledge. He says, what am I going to say? What content am I going to provide when I go to to Pharaoh? And then later in chapter 4, Moses begins to express his doubts about his ability. He says, they will not believe me. Israel won't believe me. Verse 10, Moses emphasizes almost in false modesty his weaknesses. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. He's saying, I don't have what it takes to talk to Pharaoh. And then later, in verse 13 and 14, Moses just flat out refuses God's call. He he says, oh, my Lord. He's so polite, right? Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. And verse 14 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. The covenant was in, in jeopardy. Israel was enslaved. Now God shows up in a burning bush and says that he's going to deliver them. But then he hands it off to Moses. And we see all these questions. And I go, oh my gosh, this covenant's at jeopardy again. It's, it's at risk again. Sending Moses does not seem like a good plan on God's part, doesn't it? But in sending an imperfect person like Moses, God would display his full power. He would display that he's able to keep his covenant promises even through imperfect messengers like Moses. And later in Exodus, we're going to see that God continues to keep his covenant promises to the people of Israel, even when they disobey, even when they forget about him, even when they wish they went back to Egypt. God responds to each of these questions with so much grace. That's another thing we have to note. God would provide direct responses and promises and signs to Moses 
through these questions. And just for example, right after he says, who am I? This is how God responds in verse two. But I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? I'm a nobody. And instead, God says, I'm going to be with you. That's all that matters. You're asking the wrong question. And this shall be the sign of you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you you shall serve God on this very mountain. Where you see the burning bush, you're going to worship God, worship me right here. That's what he's saying. When God comes down to his people, he often sends a representative but he always goes with that representative. And there will be somebody else a couple thousand years later who would say a very similar promise of I will be with you. That the very son of God would come to deliver his people out of slavery, not out of Egypt, but from sin and brokenness. And before Jesus ascends back after dying on the cross for our sins and and saving his people. He gives them this commission in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And right here, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When God saves his people, it's not just to save them. It's to save them and then have them join him in fulfilling the covenant of saving more people in the world. He, has, he says that, that there's a specific role that every one of us has to play. And it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. But we can't refuse the call like Moses did. When, uh, one, one commentator writes, when Moses was faced with his vocation to bring God's people out of Egypt, his reaction was, I can't, therefore I won't. But the Lord sought to bring Moses to the point where he would say instead, I can't, but he can, therefore I will. If God really is who he says he is, if God really does what he says he does, then the proper response, along with trusting him, is to obey him. Obey him. Obeying him doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Obeying him doesn't mean we are perfect people. Obeying him doesn't mean we always experience success. But obeying him means that we live out the promises of God. Obeying him means we seek out to live out what we believe. Obeying him means to persevere in the good deeds, even when it seems unfruitful. Because God, we know, according to scripture, he can use anyone, anything, anytime, and anywhere. God keeps his covenant promises by seeing, hearing, and knowing. God keeps his covenant promises by coming down and sending his people. There's a... Quick story I want to tell from a book called uh, Amazing Grace uh, by Kathleen Norris. Uh, she was visiting uh, a man named Arlo who, who was dealing with terminal cancer. And Arlo was sharing about his grandfather, who was a sincere Christian. Uh, when Arlo got married, his grandfather gifted uh, him and his wife this expensive leather Bible. 
uh, engraved their names with you know, gold, gold lettering, like beautiful leather in a, in a nice box. And his grandfather kept asking for months, do you like the Bible? Even though they had sent us thank you card and, and everything, like, do you like the Bible? Every, every single month. And it, it like bothered Arlo so much that he went, went to his closet, took, took it out of the box, and he opened it up. And he found that his grandfather has, had placed a $20 bill at the beginning of Genesis, a $20 bill at the beginning of Exodus, and every single book of the Bible. Arlo realized that his grandfather was asking if he liked the Bible if, because he wanted to know if he would ever open the Bible for himself. And before you start calculating the money, it's $1,320. <laughs> but the money isn't the issue, is it? The issue is a lot of times our Bibles stay closed and we glean things about God and our understanding of God without hearing from, from himself directly. And especially in this Lenten season as we want to go, go deeper, and I'm not trying to guilt trip any of you into reading the Bible. Please, it's not that. If anything, it's because the Bible, each book of the Bible is worth more than 20 bucks a piece. In terms of the truth, the hope, the joy, the peace that we can experience on an everyday, every moment basis. When this world doesn't make sense, the book of Exodus is worth way more than 20 bucks. When we come to know God for who he is, his character, his deeds, they transform us. It's not head knowledge. It does something in our hearts, makes us more like the people that he wants us to be. We become his covenant people. So this, this new series, we, the pastors and, and seminarians are going to be, be preaching, and we want you to know God, behold him for yourself. That is our desire. One more quote. The stories in the early part of Exodus speak to us in our times of greatest and most urgent need when we are tempted to say, God has forsaken God has forgotten. Why are things like this? And there's no purpose in it. And so on and so on. Exodus quietly reminds us that the contrary is true. God has not forsaken us. He has not forgotten us and our need. And despite appearances, his promises and purposes remain firm and their fulfillment is on the way. What good news, amen? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you and so often we come to church, we go to the Bible, we go to you in prayer and we are looking for a silver bullet. We're looking for a quick fix. We're looking for a simple solution. But your solution all along has been to be in relationship with you, to come to know you for who you are and all that you've done, not just in history, but also in our very lives. 
And if we could take the time to hear testimonies of how you have shown up, how you have seen us and heard us and known us, and how you have come down to our lives, we pray that we would easily run out of time because we would have so much to to praise you for. We pray for you to, to fill us, to strengthen us, especially in this Lenten season, that no one becomes like Jesus by accident. It takes active trust, active obedience, and praise, praise you, praise the Lord that it's not about perfection. It's about following you step by step by step. We thank you for the grace that you showed to us, to us doubting and insecure and even reluctant people. Because as you draw near to us, as you Speak to us as we trust you, as we obey you. You can make us more and more like the children of the living God and represent you well in this world, to act appropriately, to to trust you in the areas that need to be trusted and to act and to go and to to be the change wherever it is that you're, you're calling us to. So help us, God, to not refuse your call in participating in your covenant promises. And even as we continue to worship, in just a moment, we pray that those covenant promises, we would take, take them and make them our own. Because we, we want to declare, even through songs, that we want to follow you, we trust you. We thank you for this time. May we not leave this place unchanged. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the praise team comes up, let's, let's rise and...